At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Father, thank you for this day. And we do thank you for your provision and grace. And Father, just the reminder that as we sit here this morning, gathered together as your people in peace to hear your word, it is a gift that we take for granted so often. Father, that we are not concerned in our minds, it rarely ever crosses our minds what is is occurring outside of these walls and that we're not able then to gather as a result of violence happening around us, Father. So we are thankful that we can encourage one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds as we see the day drawing near and we pray for your return. So Father, be with those brothers and sisters in Ukraine and around the world where there certainly is war and violence. Be with Igor as he serves those right on the front lines, Father, who are being attacked and as they defend their country, their nation. Father, we pray for the Royal Oak Campus as we continue this search of a campus pastor, that you would answer that request. We know that in your perfect timing, you will bring an answer for us, and so we anticipate that as well and look forward to it. Now, as we open up your word, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that your spirit would have for us this day? In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Jonah chapter 1. We will begin with the last verse of Jonah chapter 1. My eyes were opened to the power of Jonah's story by an author and pastor named Artaxerdia. And much of the content this morning and really throughout this series was shaped by him. And so as you're turning there, this beautiful story, this powerful story, it's a heavy story. Not as maybe lighthearted as we often think about it as we grew up as children, if you grew up within the church. We're certainly going to see some of the depth of that today as we work through a very difficult chapter, a very powerful chapter, Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. But I will begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'm going to begin by talking to all of us this morning a little bit about parenting. How many of you in the room, many of them are at the retreat, but how many of you in the room have a teenager in your home? Just raise it up without any shame. There was hardly any at the last service because they were all still sleeping, I'm sure, or fighting with their children to try to get them here. So no, hold it up. Keep holding it up. If you are sitting around somebody with a hand in the air, just turn to them and say, God bless you. And then, I'm serious, they need it. Tell them this morning, God bless you. Hold up your hands high. God bless you. And then say, and God help you. <laughs> say that as well, and God help you. This story, it's, it's like old. It's an old story. This goes way back, like older than old school back. But who remembers the name Carl Switzer? Carl Switzer was not a teenager. He was a child. He was part of an old show that started 100 years ago this year called Our Gang. Or maybe you've heard of its more common name, The Little Rascals. Carl Switzer played Alfalfa. He was the cute little freckled star of the show. And if you've ever read about him, you've heard that he was an absolute terror on the set. He did all kinds of things to cause issue. He would take chewing gum and stuff it into the camera lenses so that they could not shoot for the day. He would pull all these pranks on other kids, adults, 
children alike. He bullied others. He was a problem. He actually one time took fishing hooks and put them in the pants of one of the other boys on set. And so when he put on those pants and went into costume, George McFarland, who played Spanky, was so severely cut, he had to rush, get rushed to the emergency room and receive a whole bunch of stitches. I mean, just crazy stuff that this kid would do. But he was alfalfa, so the adults just tolerated it. And throughout his life, he despised discipline. And because of that, he never grew up. In the middle of financial problems later in life, Carl agreed to train a hunting dog. He actually became a dog breeder, a professional dog breeder. Not what you'd expect from the child star, but that's what he did. And he was struggling. He was struggling in his personal relationships. He was struggling financially. So he agreed to train one of his friend's dogs to be a hunting dog. He received the dog to do the training. They were out in the field and a bear came by and the dog took off. So he lost the dog. He went back to his friend. His friend said, you need to reimburse me. That was a very expensive dog. He says, I don't have the money. So what he did was he posted reward pictures all over the place, said, I'll give somebody who finds the dog and brings him back alive $35. So someone found the dog, brought the dog back. Carl paid him $35 and then took him to the bar and gave him $15 worth of drinks, a total of $50. Today it'd be worth around $450. Carl then took the dog back to his friend, the owner, and said, here's your dog back, and by the way, you owe me $50. His friend's like, why do I owe you $50? Well, it was your dog, and, and I had to do all this work to go find him. And the friend's like, well, you were the one who lost him. And they get into an argument. They pull a gun. Carl is shot. He's dead at 32. There were many on that show, several cast members of that show that died young, all kinds of different stories, so much so that there was a documentary that was made called The Curse of the Little Rascals. And much of the conspiracy centers around the reality that when children grow up in environments without consistent correction, without discipline, they become self-destructive. And it's not just hard to receive discipline, that's why we pray for one another as parents. It's hard to give discipline as well. It's hard to hand it out. And when you have those younger children or teenagers, you know sometimes it's just easier to let stuff slide because you want to avoid a fight. So some people might say, I don't really have much conflict with my teenagers, with my kids. And I've heard it said that the only parents who don't have conflict with their teenagers are the ones who never tell them no. Because that's often all it takes. Why is correction and discipline necessary in a child's life? Uh, a few things, because it can wake people up and help them see what they weren't seeing before. Because discipline is necessary uh, in that it can save us from self-destructive patterns and pain. Discipline is really about the pursuit of a child's heart. It's a display of love. And when it's motivated by Jesus, then it's birthed from a heart that wants to help our sons and daughters. And of course, this morning, this sermon's not about parenting. But the point is, the reality is, this just isn't about our children either. This is about all of us as children through faith in Jesus of God. What do we do with his discipline? 
And here's how we need to reprogram our thinking. Here's what we really need to understand this morning as we dive into this chapter of God's word. When we are running from God, when we run away from God, his discipline is actually a mercy. How many of you think of discipline as mercy? As adults with our children, of course, we're trying to do it out of love to help them to help them grow so that they will actually experience life as it was intended to be lived. But when you're the recipient of that discipline at any age, especially when you're an adult, is that how you receive it as mercy? Are you receiving God's discipline when you run from him as mercy? It's a gift, a gift to be received or a gift to be rejected. And sometimes our Heavenly Father shows us mercy through discipline, and he does it out of love so we can receive it and experience life or reject it and experience self-destruction and pain. What we'll see today in this chapter is that God's severe mercy, just another way of saying God's discipline or correction, his severe mercy is terribly helpful. It's terribly helpful. This is what the prophet Jonah experiences in chapter 2. It's our third week looking into this showdown that plays out in this short little book. And it's not a showdown, by the way, between Jonah and a big fish. The showdown was between Jonah's defiance and God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's will, his way. And it's basically like, who will win here? Jonah's running or God's sovereign plan? If you were to cut out every verse in the book, actually, that had, to do with, uh, that had to do with Jonah's defiance and God's response, if you took all of those verses out, all that you would be left with is 10 verses in the whole book, two in chapter one and eight in chapter three. The whole point, the main point of the, of the whole story is very simple. It's defying God. Defying God is absolute foolishness. It's more than that. In fact, it's insanity. It's insanity. If it is you and Yahweh, the covenant name of God, you'll see it in your scripture there in all caps, the Lord. If it's you and Yahweh, I wonder who will win. And what we've been seeing is that even though Jonah's rebellion, uh, he thinks it's actually taking him away from God's plan, God ends up using all of that rebellion to accomplish his purposes anyways. God then is at the center. God is the hero. There are 39 references to him in this book, and there's only 48 verses. And God's sovereignty, his control, his will is all over these chapters. Let me just uh, just give you a a review and also a forecast of some of these things, just so we can wrap our minds around how much God is controlling the narrative here. In chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord is the one who comes to Jonah with the word. Verse 4, the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. Verse 7, God allows the lot to fall on Jonah. Verse 14, God is good with Jonah getting cast out of the ship. Verse 17, the Lord sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord is the one who caused Jonah such distress. Verse 9, the Lord is the giver of salvation. Verse 10, the Lord tells the fish to get rid of his food poisoning and vomit the man out. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord is the one who comes to Jonah with a word for the second time. Verse 9, God is the one who determines who will receive salvation. Chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord causes the plant to grow up out of the ground. Verse 7, God sends a worm to destroy the plant. Verse 8, God sends an east wind that causes Jonah to go into a near-death sunstroke. God is behind the story. He's at the center of the story. 
It's like the prophet Isaiah when he said in chapter 14 of his, of his prophetic word, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Maybe you've heard how one author put it when he said, Never forget, dear brothers and sisters, your arms are too short to box with God. Jonah's arms were too short to box with God. And so are yours, and so are mine. Jonah's heart is one of the greatest questions in this story. How can a heart so full of biblical truth and rich with covenant privilege become so stubbornly opposed to God's plans? Can you find yourself in this at all? You know God's grace. You are steeped in his truth. You are connected to his people through the new covenant in Jesus, and yet sometimes you fail to follow where he is leading. We are all like Jonah. We all walk down this same path. But if you are in Christ and loved by God, just as Jonah was loved by God, then God will not allow you to run forever. He will chase you down and do his work because God's severe mercy is terribly helpful. It's his mercy to us. It's his love towards us. This is what we're supposed to know when the curtain opens in act two of this story. The whole section is enclosed by what the father does. Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 10. It's bookended by what God does. And the whole point, the author is bookending it by God's doing because God is controlling everything. So Jonah's near-death experiences and this crazy way of rescuing him, it's all meant to help us answer that question that I brought up earlier. Why is God's correction for his children, why is God's discipline for his children so necessary? Why is it necessary in your life and mine? Here's the first reason. God employs severe mercy. God employs discipline to pursue us. He does it to pursue us. Look at verse 17 again. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord God is the author of Jonah's misery. Most people read this and, and, and don't think much about the Lord. It's like they skip over the first few words there and the Lord appointed and they just go to the next part. A great fish swallowed up Jonah. And they get all wrapped up with questions about the fish. They're just thinking, what kind of fish is this? What kind of species? That's what I want to research. That's what I want to know. Do you think Jonah cared what kind of fish this was? Do you think he, he had any thought? Do you think he knew? Like when he finally got thrown up out of the mouth of the fish, like, oh, that's, oh, no, now it makes sense. Or, or he turned to some of the people on the beach to say, would you, would you grab somebody and, and just quickly paint a picture of what that was so I can, I really want to know like what kind of species that was. And by the way, we always say it was a whale. It wasn't a whale. The Jewish people, they had a word for whale. They didn't use it. They use the word for great fish. And so all our coloring books, they're all wrong. All the kids' toys, they're wrong. 
It was this fish, and guess what? The type of fish, it doesn't matter. All those questions about the fish are really questions that people are asking about this. They're just saying, is the story something I can actually believe? Is it verifiable? Is it something that could be proven? James Bartley lived from 1870 to 1909. He didn't have a long life. And there was a story written stating that James was swallowed whole by a sperm whale. He was found days later in the stomach of the whale, which was dead from constipation. The story originated in an anonymous article called Man and a Whale's Stomach, Rescue of a Modern Day Jonah. It was page 8, August 22nd, 1891, uh, in the newspaper, the Yarmouth Mercury in Great Yarmouth, England. So people read this legendary story with a bunch of holes in it, and it makes them feel better to say, see, this could have happened. See, this could have happened. Uh, the problem is not everything in the Bible, friends, can be explained. It's, it's a miracle, and by definition, a miracle means an act of God. So when people say, do you really believe a man remained alive inside the belly of a fish for three days? Our response should always be, that is not more far-fetched than a man who was raised to life after three days in the grave. If you have an issue with the supernatural, then the Bible is not your book. The Bible is not your book because believing in the Bible is not rejecting science. It's simply trusting God when he says that he bends the rules on occasions because he was the author of the rules to begin with. It's our worldview. It's our presupposition that we bring to the text that causes us to ask the right questions. So God uses a great fish, a great fish, a fish to show mercy. And pursue Jonah. God used in another place of scripture a talking donkey to show mercy to a man named Balaam who was also on his way to do the opposite of what God said for him to do. You could read all about that story in Numbers chapter 22. It's like one of the best stories to read your children. It's so entertaining. You can read uh, all these situations from the word of God, but the point is if you're walking away from God, He's probably not going to pursue you with a fish or a talking donkey. For most of humanity, and for most of us, he pursues us most consistently, sometimes through our spouse, sometimes through a sermon, through his word, through his spirit. God lets you know you are walking away from my path for you. You are walking in the opposite direction that I have for you, Turn around. He's after our hearts. Art, uh, my friend, put it this way, with the resources of the entire universe at his fingertips, God will skillfully employ whatever tool necessary to bring you back on the path of faithful obedience. Even if doing so brings you to the very precipice of death itself, he will hurt you to save you. You can't outrun him. You can't outmuscle him. You can't escape him. And life without him is death forever. So if he is after your heart, know it is because he loves you and choose to respond before you're swallowed up and in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. It's easier to turn around when you're still on your way to the dock. Don't wait. Don't wait another week when you feel that prompting to say, I'll just... 
I'll just keep going, or I felt that prodding, I felt that prick, but you know, it's gone in a few minutes. I'll leave the church this morning, I'll start to feel a little better about it, I'll ignore it, so I'll just keep going, and I'll keep going. Turn around when the Lord is trying to get your attention before it results in severe mercy, which is for your good, but causes pain. Sometimes when we're walking that road, we think it We think it will bring us joy. We think it's full of pleasure. And oftentimes that's what it feels like in a moment. But that's never where it ends. It always ends in the bottom of the sea. Why is God's discipline necessary? Because discipline is a mercy God uses to pursue our hearts. Secondly, it's a mercy meant to awaken us. To awaken us. Not physically to wake us up, but to awaken our soul, to orient our heart back towards truth, to expose a lie, to expose deception, to expose where we've been. So in verse one of chapter two, then Jonah, then Jonah, important word, then Jonah. Now that he's swallowed up in a dark place of death, then Jonah prays. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Do you remember that the pagan captain begged Jonah to pray in the storm? Just last week, we looked at that section of chapter one. And Jonah wouldn't. No way. Why? He he couldn't pray. It's like when a drink or food goes down the wrong tube. You can't speak or talk or even really breathe right until the issue is resolved. So what drove Jonah to prayer? It's It's God's severe mercy. It's God's gift of discipline. It finally woke up his heart. And when we can turn to someone or something uh, and still think that we can find some solution or some way out or some hope and, and we can do it apart from God, sometimes we're so stubborn that we'll just chase after every loose end, every way that we can find, every other path except for the one that God's chosen for us. Until all the options are gone. Until you come to the end and you realize there's no more options, there's no more possibilities, there's no more schemes, there's no more hope. They're all gone. I've tried to solve this issue without God. And finally, finally Jonah sees that despite all of his rebellion, God is actually not destroying him, which is what he deserved. He is still saving him. He is still pursuing him with love. So verse two, he prayed saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of the shield. I cried and you heard my voice. What finally prompted the prayer? It says it right here for us. My distress. Are you in a place of distress? Because he is at the doorstep, he says, of Sheol. What's Sheol? Uh, To be in Sheol is to be in the place of the dead, the physical location of death itself. That's how it was used in the Old Testament. And so he's in the belly of this great fish. He's in the physical place of death. He's in Sheol beyond all help. Jonah is on death's doorstep and it forces him to cry out. Verse three, for you, God, He's putting all of of this event, he's putting all of this action that has happened to him onto God. He's saying, God, you're responsible for you cast me into the deep. 
into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now you might be thinking, wasn't it the sailors who threw him into the ocean? And wasn't it him, Jonah, who told them to throw him in? So why is it he saying that it was God who did all of this? Well, there's two things happening. This is what scholars call secondary causes and primary causes. An example, a secondary cause. The sun comes up. The earth has completed one full spin in its orientation to the sun. That is a secondary cause. The gravitational pull, our rotation around the sun. The primary cause, God has authored another day. He's the primary. All things within creation are secondary. All under his sovereign control. Jonah is seeing that God's fingerprints are all over this. So he says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Driven away from your sight, it's a phrase used in the Old Testament describing a husband who is divorcing his wife. He's saying, Jonah is saying, this is it. The Lord is done with me. He's divorcing me. And the next phrase, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's how it's translated in the ESV, the English Standard Version, the, the version that we use here at Woodside. This is actually a goofy translation. I think it's much better translated, and other translations use this way, as a question. He's basically saying, I feel like you're divorcing me, God. You are separating yourself from me. And then he asks this question, shall I again look upon your holy temple? In other words, he's saying, how will I look upon your holy temple? How can I enter back into your presence if I'm dead in Sheol? In other words, I've been separated from you. So since Jonah did not reply to God's command on his life to preach to the Ninevites with your will be done, this is God saying to Jonah, fine, your will be done. Your will be done. You wanted it, you got it. You would have rather died than done what I have asked you to do because of your own self-righteousness and self-idolatry. That's what you want, that's what you're getting. And he brings them all the way to the edge of death itself. Right on the edge of the cliff, right at the precipice. Verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And if you follow the language closely through this book, in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa. Verse 5, Jonah went down the hall of the ship. Chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah went down to the front gates of Sheol. It's all just movement down, 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 away from God. You know, sometimes death is what brings our rescue. This is a picture, really, of the Christian life. It's what baptism is all about. It's when the believer stands there and says, I placed my faith in Jesus, and I'm following with this symbol of baptism because what I'm demonstrating here is that when I go under the water, when I'm buried into the depths of the sea, when I go under the water, I'm relating to Christ's death. That my sin brings about spiritual death, but because of Christ's life, because of his sacrifice, because of the cross, because of the power of his resurrection, I then come up out of the sea, out of the waters, and I am brought to new life. 
resurrection. That's the picture of the Christian life. And sometimes going all the way down to the depths is the way that God awakens our heart to the reality of who we are and our desperate need of him. We need discipline. The author of Hebrews talks about this so beautifully, and it's worth reading. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. If you take notes, write down that chapter and verse. It's such a beautiful section of Scripture that talks about the Lord's discipline for us. Let me read it for you here this morning. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, basically he's saying to every believer, which includes us today, if you have been left without God's discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you're not disciplined, then you're not his child. Only his children then receive such discipline. Besides this, verse 9. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. We are trained by discipline just in the same way we hope that it trains our children as we hand it out. Do you despise God's discipline? Do you ignore it? Do you refuse it? Let's be honest, friends. I mean, I feel this all the time as a parent. There's times when I'm actually disciplining my kids and I'm thinking to myself, like inwardly, where you have, you're doing one thing, but you're actually thinking another. Like you do different things at the exact same time. And so while I'm talking to my child, I'm also thinking, man, it's such a weird phase of life that I have this position of authority at this point in time. They're in my house. And if they want food and shelter, then they, they need to sometimes listen up a little bit. And so I'll, I'll discipline them. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm doing this for them, but I hate receiving it myself. And as adults, like the truth is at 42 years old, I don't have that many people really disciplining me in my life at this point. It's not the same way as when I was young. It's probably not the same for you. As adults, in some ways, we actually get more repulsed by it. We run farther from it faster. But the point is, I still need it, and so do you. Like, we're still growing up. Our lives are still being shaped into the image of the Son. And that means sometimes we need to receive God's severe mercy. Discipline is God's mercy to pursue our hearts, to awaken us, and finally, to save us. Look at the back half of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought up. Everything in the book to this point has been down, down, down. And finally, here's the turn. Here's the shift. Here's the change. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. It's the first time it changes. It's 
the first time we switch directions. And notice how he talks to, and notice how he talks to God. He says, oh Lord, here's another change. My God. Before it's like, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm, I, I'm running from you. I want to have distance from you because I don't believe in what you're trying to do. I don't believe in what you've asked me to do. I don't want to do what you've asked me to do. So there's distance. And now at this point, finally out of desperation, he receives him and says, my God. Now he's personal again. Here's the thing that changed. When his orientation changed, his life changed. When our orientation changes, our life changes. When we're running away from God, it's all focused here on ourselves, on the earth, on what we desire, on what we're pursuing. And finally, we have to come to that place and God will pursue us by his spirit until we get there where he's wanting to turn our gaze, not from down, but up. And when we finally turn and admit and say, God, that's the wrong way. Now I'm going to look towards you. Now I'm going to listen to you. That's when things begin to change. If you're struggling because of the consequences of your own actions in defiance against God, call out to him. And what this story shows us, what this scripture tells us is that he will hear you. He will hear you. But what's so remarkable is not that Jonah called out to God in the belly of a fish. It's the fact that God actually answered him. That he heard him. This is how Spurgeon put it. I love how he stated this. He said, because God is the living God, he can hear. Because he is a loving God, he will hear. Because he is our covenant God, he has bound himself to hear us. If we can each one speak of him as my God, we may with absolute certainty say, my God will hear me. Come then, O bleeding heart, and let thy sorrows tell themselves out to the Lord thy God. I will bow the knee in secret and inwardly whisper, my God will hear me. So many times when we are rebelling against God and found in disobedience, we're just thinking, I've gone too far. He's not going to hear my voice. And what Jonah tells us is even in the belly of a fish, at the bottom of the ocean, after all that defiance and rebellion, when God could have used another prophet, he still heard his voice. Don't ever think that your prayers are outside or too far away from the ear of God. He will hear you every time. You call out to him. So if you've been running, I know the temptation, that's the deception, is that Satan would would cause our minds to think, just just don't talk to him. You can't talk to him. There's too much shame. He doesn't want to see you like this. You need to clean yourself up a little bit first. It's deception, friends. That's exactly the moment that God will show himself most powerful to you. And he will hear you. He will respond. He appeals to God's steadfast love to grant him mercy for his idolatry. Idolatry is always the issue. It was Israel's issue. It was always their struggle. It's it's ours as well. It just looks different. It could be a phone. It could be a dollar. It could be a spouse, a family, a relationship. Most commonly, it's self-idolatry. But it's anything that steals our heart's first love away from God. And Jonah said, I will not preach to the Ninevites. My way is better, greater, wiser than God's. And now he comes to this conclusion, verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed 
I will pay. What he's saying, finally, he comes to the place where the pagans came three days earlier. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, the response is always the same here. Uh, They came to the place of worship and praise because they found mercy in the midst of misery. And when he says, I will pay my vow, he's basically saying, you told me what to do and I rejected it. Now I'm at the place where I can turn to you, make the vow and say, I will do it. I will do it. I will turn. I will make my vow. I will do what you've asked. And the thing is, when we do that, when we walk down that path, when we walk down that road, that's actually where we find what we're looking for. It might not show up materially. It often shows up inwardly. It's peace. It's peace. It's fulfillment. It's joy. It's every fruit of the Spirit that is promised us in Christ. Verse 9, salvation, he then says, belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Many people know a lot about the doctrine of salvation by grace. That means that you cannot earn salvation by your own effort. Salvation by grace means it's been earned for you through the life of Christ. But not very many people know the grace of the doctrine of salvation. Jonah doesn't get to decide, in other words, who hears the gospel. He doesn't get to decide the salvation of the Ninevites. It says right here, salvation belongs to the Lord. So don't think that you know better than God who should receive his mercy. Because this is what we do. This is what we do in our relationships. We say, well, you know what? From my perspective, he doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. Offer forgiveness? No way. They don't deserve it. They don't, uh, they, they should not receive any kind of love from me. And so what we do is we look at our actions, we look, we look at what we've done, we, we get worked up in our anger, we create distance, we create isolation, we give a family member, a loved one, the cold shoulder, we create that, that relational distance because we're trying to punish them and we feel justified in our actions. And as we work that way out, as we do that with that person, the whole time we're saying, God, see, my way is actually what they really deserve. Your way, that's not what I'm interested in. Sometimes we have to come to that place where we understand that it is the Lord who authors salvation. Salvation belongs to God, so when he commands us, forgive, embrace Show mercy as I have shown mercy. Extend forgiveness as I have extended forgiveness to you. Do these things because it's not your job to determine who's worthy of my mercy. It's just your job to extend mercy like I did to you. Friends, this is so relevant. How many more divorces between brothers and sisters in Christ How many more broken relationships with our children and parents? How many more moves of isolation? I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable, but listen to the word of the Lord. Turn around. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know what Jesus is really saying here? He's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is the Lord's. 
And Jesus is the means. Jesus was buried three days. He rose and he conquered sin, death, and the grave. And I pray that you have received the mercy of God through giving your life to Christ through faith so that you never experience the full severity of where our defiance ultimately leads, which is eternal separation from God. There's just death there. There's nothing else. And so we have that opportunity. We have that, and everyone has that opportunity. Uh, there's a character named Erebus as we close this morning. It's one of the main characters in C.S. Lewis's third book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Horse and His Boy. I read these to my children. I love, I love them. And Erebus was arrogant. She was selfish. She was hardened. And at one point, she is attacked on this adventure she's on by a lion. The lion could have killed her. And this lion that she had never seen, but it had been tracking her this whole time, came and he scratched her with with his claws and wounded her. Later she finds safety. She escapes the clutches of that that incident. And she meets Aslan, the great lion, the, the lion who represents Jesus. And this is what Aslan says, Draw near, Erebus, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will, not be porn this, uh, you will not be torn this time. This time, sir, said Erebus. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. He was the lion. Don't despise the wounds that God has given you to bring, him back to, to bring you back to himself. Don't despise them. The wound is what changed her. It's what softened her. It's what taught her. It was terribly helpful. It was a mercy. So when we are running from God, his discipline is a mercy. It's a gift, a gift to be received or a gift to be rejected. Receive the help. And here's where we'll close. Return to God in prayer and repentance and then leave this place not with shame. Leave it with, with, with hope. Leave it with grace. Leave this place full of his love because when we actually take our petition to him and turn in repentance to him and say, I'm listening. I will do as you say because I know that's where life is. You can actually leave at peace and filled with his presence. That's what he desires for so many here today. I pray you have the courage to do so. Father God, thank you for this day and for your word. Father, I pray that you would bring to conviction anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That they lived an independent life, that they've gone their own way and they know in their heart even now that they've done it on their own. They know that that rebellion has created a rift in relationship with you. And I pray that even in these moments, they would have the courage to cry out to you in their heart and say, God, forgive me. Hear my cry. I'm in distress and I'm separated from you. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you for Jesus. That he took the death that I deserved and that he showed me life everlasting. I want to follow his way. I submit my life to his way, your will. Change me. I'm orienting myself to you. And Father, for every person who has placed their faith in Jesus in this room this morning, if we, and we all do it sometimes, if we are walking down that road towards Joppa and we're heading towards the dock, or maybe they're on the boat, or maybe they're in the belly at the bottom of the sea, 
Father, I pray that they would also have the courage to turn and repent and say, Lord, have your way. I receive your mercy. And Father, may they leave this place this morning, not more heavy laden, not with heavier shoulders, but casting off all that weight, knowing they are forgiven to you, knowing they've turned their head towards you, that they have been heard by you, and that you have now filled them with hope and grace. May we be a light people, knowing that Jesus has carried the weight for us. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for our living hope that is Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.